Many of the world leaders who honored Queen Elizabeth yesterday are now in New York for the United Nations General Assembly. Among them, Prime Minister Trudeau. They'll be tackling some weighty issues from the ongoing conflict in Ukraine to the ongoing COVID pandemic. Colin Robertson is a former Canadian diplomat served at the United Nations and a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute joining us this evening. Good evening, Colin. Good to be with you, Angela. I want to just first of all talk about the importance of the the UN General Assembly. First of all, is this the first time that they've actually met as a group face to face? I've kind of lost track with um, COVID going on for so long. Talk about the significance of this week's meetings. Sure. Well, it's the 77th time that the General Assembly has met. The United Nations was formed out of the disaster that was World War II. Uh, the intention was to create a global institution dedicated to ending war and solving conflicts and attending to all the other needs that were global in significance. We had tried a similar kind of exercise after World War I and created the League of Nations. The United Nations were, so the United States is one of the architects, but they didn't join and the thing collapsed within a matter of about 15 years. Canada was there from the beginning and worked hard to make the League work, but we learned that without the United States, without the major powers present, it just didn't go. So when they set up the United Nations in 1945, Franklin Roosevelt, then President of the United States, said this was really important. Harry Truman picked it up. But they, one of the things, they, they created the General Assembly, which is where conversations will take place this week. And that's basically like the House of Commons. They created an executive council called the Security Council with five permanent members, Russia, the United States, Britain, France, uh, and um, who is the, the fifth? It's the skill testing China, question China. from China, yes. Yes, China. And China's, of course, changed seats in about 1978 when the People's Republic of China took the seat from Taiwan. But there's also 15 other members uh, that serve two-year terms, of which Canada has been a member several times, although we've been defeated the last couple of times we sought a seat on the Security Council, <laughs> partly because we're lumped in with the Europeans, and they all tend to vote for a European. So that's a bit of the backdrop. This week's important because it's the first time in three years that the leaders have actually got together. Your point is that, no, they haven't met because of COVID. They've done stuff by Zoom call and they beamed things in. The, the permanent, uh, the Security Council has met in person, but at the, the this general debate, which takes place this week with leaders, <coughs> this, is the, this is the first time in three years you're gonna get most of the leaders there. In fact, of the 193 countries at the UN, the reckoning is about 140 of the leaders are going to show up. Notably absent will be China's Xi Jinping and Russia's Vladimir uh, Putin. Ukraine's President Voldemort Zelensky has got special permission. In fact, they had to have a vote on it. He's going to appear by Zoom because, as he's pointed out, he can't appear because the country's at war. Okay, great background, and thanks so much for that information. So as we head into the meetings this week, uh, first of all, the opening statement from Secretary General Antonio Guterres, stark opening message saying, our world is in peril and paralyzed. Would you agree? Yes, I think that's right. I think he's into his second term. He's an experienced politician himself, originally from Portugal. Uh, and he is, in the last month, he has brokered a deal with between the Russians and Ukrainians using the Turks as intermediary in, in in order to get food out of Ukraine ports that have been blockaded by the Russians. And he's just recently been 
to Pakistan, where a third of the country is underwater. And this is a country of, what, 246 million. And it really underlines uh, the other existential challenge, that's climate change. And in, his, in those remarks that you cite, he basically put the problems in three baskets. Conflict, of which Ukraine, certainly to we in the West, is very prominent. But if you're in Africa, you've got Congo, Mali, Ethiopia, and the Middle East, Syria is ongoing. And now there's problems in the Caucasus. And then the third problem after climate that he identified was poverty and inequality. And this has been exacerbated by the COVID pandemic and countries that are poor are even poorer and truly stretched. In fact, Sri Lanka has declared bankruptcy and had to go to the International Monetary Fund in order to get funds just to be able to buy food and fuel for their people. Wow, no kidding. World is in peril and paralyzed. So where do we go from here then? Because if you're talking about those three major areas from conflict to climate change to poverty, uh, inequality, what role does the General Assembly, the United Nations have in dealing with this and how successful can they be? Angela, the General Assembly is a bit like the House of Commons, but there aren't parties. Remember, you've got 193 nations present and there are caucuses because the they're broken up into kind of regional groups, but when they meet, they meet as individual nations. So it's the place where they all talk about their problems and it's a smorgasbord of problems that we're gonna hear over the coming weeks in the speeches from the leaders that are there. The, the real work of the UN takes place in the alphabet soup of agencies that are attached to it, like the World Food Program, like the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, like the United Nations Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, like the World Health Organization. And they all operate, they're not all based in New York, some are based in Geneva, some in Rome, and they are exist to try and deal with an ongoing basis with the big problems that we've talked about. Climate, for example, will be talked about at the Committee of the Parties at the end of November at their meeting in just outside of Cairo in Egypt. And it's, I think, the 27th meeting there. So there's a continuum here, it's a process, and it's only as strong as those members, that, like countries like ourselves, are willing to put into it and where we can try to reach consensus. And the criticism, of course, of the UN is that, it's a, that it is just a talking shop and not much happens. I think that's a bit harsh. It's probably fair for the General Assembly because that was set up as a talking shop, but the organizations like the International Labor Organization or the World Health Organization have actually made big progress in doing things like setting labor standards or uh, virtually eliminating uh, polio. Uh, it's one of the things Mr. Trudeau will talk about this week. He'll, one of the sessions he's going to is how do you deal with AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis? And we learned a lot from COVID in terms of getting vaccines out to people. So that's that will be one of the subset of meetings that Trudeau will be at this week. Uh, Colin, um, before the break, you touched on the fact that Prime Minister Trudeau will be attending a session dealing with AIDS. And I'm just wondering, as the leader of our country, what role does he have? Um, is it is it just there as a spectator, as a contributor? Can you give me a little idea of what we can expect from Prime Minister Trudeau? Sure. The, the, the first, the opening weeks of a General Assembly, which starts in September, are when the leaders come and speak. And because they haven't met for three years, uh, they're actually getting together for the first time in person. And that's really important because it's leader to leader. That's how things happen. You know, they, some of them saw each other 
course, at the Queen's funeral in London. Uh, and in fact, Justin Trudeau flew across the Atlantic with Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand. New Zealand's a good friend of Canada. And one of the things that the Prime Minister will be talking about this week is an initiative launched by Jacinda Ardern called the Christchurch Call, which is to try and deal with online hate, which can lead to terrorism. She set this up in the wake of the Christchurch massacre. President Emmanuel Macron of France has been a big player in this as well. And so the, that caucus will meet and talk about what can we do in the democracies to try and deal with online hate, because we can learn from one another. As you mentioned, the session he'll be going to on, on disease. Uh, he'll be accompanied in all of these cases. We have a permanent representative. Our ambassador there is Bob Ray, former premier of Ontario and the interim leader of the Liberal Party. And he's a very effective ambassador in my uh, view. He's uh, It helps to have political skills at the UN because the UN is ultimately, the, the, the in a sense, arguably the big political body where all the countries in the world come together. And having somebody with Bob's experience and political skills, I think, does make Canada more uh, useful over time. And it's his job to pick up the initiatives or that which the prime minister leaves to requiring follow-up. The Prime Minister himself will give a speech to the General Assembly, talking to all the delegates. He's uh, spoke twice before. The first time, his focus was very much on climate, which is still very close to his heart. The next time he came, he talked about uh, Indigenous uh, rights and gender equality and reconciliation. And I think that you'll see that theme. But he's already signaled that this time he's also going to talk about the conflict in Ukraine, and where Canada can be helpful, particularly in terms of solving the food crisis, which we know uh, is is a problem. You know, we see it in our when we go into our own grocery stores and prices have gone up. Well, of course, in the third world, it's even worse. The developing countries. So th th those will be themes that he will talk about. But he'll be pulled aside because literally everybody's in the same building by other leaders, and it's a very effective way to actually launch an idea or get a feedback an idea and see ideas germinate, and then you pass it on to your ambassador. And as I mentioned, the multiplicity of agencies that take these things and run with it, because the UN is ultimately just the collective of the 193 nations in the world. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador to the UN, because earlier today, he did admit that there is pressure and it's increasing when it comes to Canada's contributions to the Global Fund. That would be one of those agencies that you touched on that is dealing with uh, the spread of treatable disease or trying to curb the spread of treatable diseases. Where is Canada when it comes to uh, meeting those contribution expectations to funds like the Global Fund? Well, we, we are a the 10th biggest economy in the world, but we are the eighth biggest giver to the UN, and we always have been. And there have been some problems in the past with countries, including the United States, who don't pay their, their kind of membership fee. But Canada has been consistent in paying right up front. So the UN and anybody who runs a business will understand this. If you get the contribution right up front, beginning your fiscal year, you can plan better than having to wait to the last minute and hope that the money's going to come in. Um, we like to think of ourselves at the UN as playing the role of the helpful fixer, trying to come up with ideas, solutions, using our convening power, because countries do like Canada. All the global surveys show this. And we, if you look at Canada, we are extraordinarily diverse, and it works. You know, the reason the Aga Can set up his 
Center for Pluralism in Canada because he said of all the countries in the world, the one country where pluralism really does work, you know, it's not without its flaws, is Canada. I, I want to go back to the conflict in Ukraine because we, we know in the early months of it, it was all about NATO and what NATO members were going to be doing. When it comes to the United Nations then, is their role more looking after, as you said, getting food supplies, um, the role that Turkey has played in kind of negotiating things, just the difference between the United Nations and NATO in maybe ultimately seeing an end to this conflict? Sure. Well, traditionally, the UN was set up to be able to solve these kind of conflicts. But the permanent five within the UN Security Council, which is the body charged with dealing with the day-to-day -day affairs. As I mentioned, it's Russia, China, Britain, France, and the United States. Well, Russia, of course, is the aggressor. And Russia was, in fact, chairing the, the, the chairmanship rotates monthly through the various members of the Security Council. And Russia was actually chairing the Security Council in February of this year when the Russians invaded, breaking all the UN covenants about territorial sovereignty. And President Zelensky, who appealed to the UN, the UN Security Council, to try and fix this because this was aggression by Russia, said, if you don't act, it points out that the UN is basically bankrupt because your job is supposed to be able to contain the kind of aggression that Russia has committed. And I think that's part of the reason why the UN Secretary General and Bob Ray says, yes, the UN has real problems. President Biden has said that he's going to devote his speech this week in part to talk about UN reform because the Security Council is not working the way it was designed to work. So, you know, right off, Angela, got to acknowledge there are problems. The UN is not working as well as it should. The fact that the General Assembly had to be the body to condemn Russia, and even then it only gathered 141 votes, and while the, the Russia was thrown off the UN Human Rights Council, appropriately so, given the, the allegations of war crimes that have been committed, the, the number of countries that have actually taken real sanctions against Russia are only about 40 or 45 of the 193. And that really does point out to a problem in the UN because the UN has the ability to apply sanctions and then enforce them. We participate, for example, in sanctions enforcement that the UN has condoned against North Korea because it's violated commitments around the development of nuclear weapons. Great information, and it will be interesting to see what comes out of these meetings. I really appreciate all the background, Colin. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Angela.